Welcome to Power Lunch, a live stream and podcast from Minnesota Center for Environmental Advocacy, where you can get smarter over your peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I'm your host, Aaron Clems. I'm the director of public engagement at MCEA. Power Lunch is a conversation with one of MCEA's experts recorded live. We live stream these conversations on Facebook Live, and then we also make them available to you as an audio podcast and as also as a video on YouTube as well. And in each episode, we focus on one aspect of MCEA's work to defend Minnesota's water, climate, air, and people. MCEA has been doing this critically important work since 1974, and our lawyers, policy experts, legislative lobbyists, and mapping and GIS specialists give us a unique capacity to protect the Minnesota that you love. Today, we're talking to Betsy Lawton, MCEA's Water Program Director. Betsy's been working across the Midwest for years to protect people from polluted drinking water, and she'll talk a little bit about MCEA's work on several mega feedlot proposals and our efforts to get stronger rules in place to protect Minnesota's drinking water, and also how you can help. We hope you'll learn something today that you didn't know before. If you want to keep up with our work, please visit our website, mncenter.org, or follow us on Twitter and Facebook at MCEA1974. That's at MCEA1974. If you would like to support our work, please consider a donation. Go to mncenter.org slash donate. And now, our Power Lunch conversation with Betsy Lawton. So, hey, Betsy, how's it going? Good, how are you? I'm doing great. Um, so, Betsy, tell me what you do at MCEA. So I'm the water program director, and I'm also a senior staff attorney. Um, We help develop the policies um, that the water program works on, and particularly we work on a variety of water pollution issues. There's a variety of sources of water pollution in Minnesota, um, and we work to protect both our drinking water um, from those sources of pollution and our lakes and rivers, which are very important to Minnesotans. Sure. So what are some of the primary threats to Minnesota's water, drinking water, um, water that we fish and swim in. What are some of the threats that you're that you're working on in MCEA? So there's a variety of sources of pollution to Minnesota's waters. First, there's the permitted sources of pollution. These are pipes that discharge to our lakes and rivers. These are things like sewage treatment plants that treat everything you flush down your toilet or that runs down your tap. Um, and the pollution from these facilities generally isn't an accident. It's something that's permitted as long as it's kept under certain levels, safe levels that the agencies have developed. Um, then there's the pollution that results when things uh, run off the land's surface. So when it rains or when snow melts, um, the water essentially um, washes the pollutants that are on the ground surface into rivers and lakes and sometimes into the groundwater. Mm. So these pollutants can be things like fertilizers or pesticides, salt from your sidewalks, oil and grease from roadways. It sounds like there's a bunch of different sources of pollution, some of which you have different tools to address. Talk to me a little bit more about the permits that people get. What, what, how, how, does, how do they go about applying for a permit? What role do you play in evaluating whether these permits meet the law or not? So generally, um, facilities that discharge out of a pipe, those are the industrial facilities and the sewage treatment plants, have to apply for what's called the Clean Water Act permit every five years. And the agency assesses sort of what is coming out of the pipe um, mm-hmm. that is discharging and what, uh, how much pollution should be coming out of the facility in order to keep the rivers and lakes below certain levels of pollution. Um, Mm -hmm. Minnesota has designated most of our waters for fishing and for swimming, so we want to make sure that the pollutant levels are safe for fish and for us to swim in and um, recreate in, boat, um, all of those things. So the limits in those permits are based on allowing some pollution, but not too much as to prevent us to use our waters in those ways. And then you mentioned a bunch of other kinds of pollution, stuff that comes from runoff from the land. 
Is a lot of that regulated? And if so, how? And like, what's the, if we were to do a percentage, like what percentage of water pollution issues are those that result from permitted sources versus those from these kinds of runoff sources? Well, the runoff sources are certainly harder to control because they don't don't come out of a pipe. That's essentially whatever washes off the land. And so those sources have been harder to control over the years. And I don't necessarily have a percentage for you, but I would say that um, those are the sources that we're most concerned about now because they're the hardest to regulate. Um, Things like um, agricultural pollution that don't have those permits um, have been, um, they're they're a large source of pollution in the state just because we haven't been able to get a good handle on on the permitting of them. Right. So is Minnesota on the right track for water then? I mean, we value our water in Minnesota for lots of things, including drinking, of course, but also fishing and swimming, as you mentioned. Are Minnesota's waters getting cleaner or dirtier as we go along? Well, there's a lot we we don't know because we're still collecting data. Um, But what we do know is that a lot of our lakes and streams have more pollution than what is safe for recreation or what's safe for fish and other critters that are living in the water. Um, So the state has collected some data on pollutants that are um, harmful to recreation, like bacteria. No one wants to swim in bacteria-infested waters by any means. Um, And just over half the lake acres in the state have been assessed. um, And the data shows that about half of those acres meet the pollutant standards. So uh, that doesn't seem like a great statistic. So, so <laughs> half of them don't meet the pollution standards. Correct, or don't have enough information for us to know. That okay. would be the other option, yeah. And our rivers don't fare much better. Um, so they've collected data um, on pollutants that harm fish in about a quarter of the waters in the state, and almost half of those um, exceed safe levels, and another quarter of those water bodies don't even have enough information to tell us whether um, fish are protected. And there's even less data on pollutants that pre- that those bacterial pollutants that would prevent us from swimming um, or using our larger rivers for boating and other types of recreation. Um, there's only data on about 15% of the, of the stream miles in the state, and a third of those stream miles um, have are are shown to be safe enough for recreation. So also not a great statistic. Another thing that we don't really know is um, there's a lot of pollutants that we don't either have data on or um, that don't have standards. So for example, nitrate is a pollution, a pollutant that Minnesota has determined can impact fish negatively. Um, but they haven't adopted a formal standard, so we really don't know um, how many of our fish are being impacted by negative by high levels of nitrate. Well, nitrate is one of those contaminants and those pollutants that is kind of across the landscape in a lot of different places. So we've been talking so far about surface waters like rivers and streams and lakes, but we also have a whole bunch of really important water underneath the ground, groundwater, which lives in between layers of rock, but it's something that folks depend upon for, for wells and for other purposes as well. So what do we know about the state of our groundwater, mm-hmm. not just the surface water that's above that we can see every day? So groundwater is important because about 75% of the of Minnesotans drink water from aquifers that are under the ground versus lakes and streams. Um, and this is distributed either to city via cities or comes out of the tap from a private well. So those are two different sources of how we get that groundwater to our taps in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Um, and recently, the Department of Agriculture has t- began testing nitrate levels in private wells um, that, that are sourced from the, this groundwater um, to determine if nitrogen fertilizer, that's a wide 
widely used on agricultural crops is causing contamination of these sources. Mm. And they found that generally 10% of private wells exceed safe levels of nitrate. And nitrate is troublesome <laughs> for many reasons, but in high levels, it can cause blue baby syndrome, which threatens, um, can threaten the life of a child. Um, mm. and, and used for long-term exposure, um, high nitrate levels are linked to thyroid problems and cancers. And sadly, in some townships, the Department of Agriculture has tested up to 40% of the private wells exceed safe levels of nitrate. So how do they pick which townships they're going to test for this, this testing program? My understanding is that the Department of Health identifies areas where there's likely to be higher levels of contamination. How do they pick where they're going to do these tests? So at this point, they've prioritized areas where there is significant amount of agriculture and um, the landscape is such that um, water readily runs through the soil into the groundwater. Mm. So they're vulnerable. Those areas are particularly vulnerable to the contaminants reaching the groundwater. So those are the areas they've prioritized at this point for testing. Okay. So we, we have a Groundwater Protection Act in Minnesota that was passed about 30 years ago. And it's supposed to protect this resource for people right now, but also people into the future. So what rules have we created under that act to try to protect this groundwater resource for the future? So thus far, the Department of Agriculture, which has the authority to set these rules and restrictions um, on agricultural practices to protect groundwater, hasn't developed any rules. They, um, agric- in, in 30 years? In 30, in, in 30 years. 30 years. Um, there's been a big push to... Um, urge farmers to adopt practices that are protective of groundwater voluntarily or to provide incentive payments to farmers to take those actions. Mm-hmm. But just this year, MDA is the Department of Agriculture is finalizing a, its first rule um, that could allow um, the agency to require farmers to take some steps to protect um, public water supplies that are threatened by nitrate pollution. All right. So this this rule that they're considering right now, do you, what's your opinion about it? Do you think it's strong enough to protect people's drinking water? And are there people that are protected and some that are not in that rule? Sorry, I'm kind of I'm kind of leading the question here, but I mean I know I know that rule only applies to folks who are in these drinking water supply management areas near cities. Mm-hmm. Is there any protection for people who are private well owners? So there is one um, sort of broader protection that applies to all the vulnerable areas of the state, um, and that prohibits the application of nitrogen fertilizer on fall and on frozen ground. But this is generally something that farmers aren't doing anyway. Um, so it's a pretty limited protection. It's good. It's there, um, but it's something that's not w- uh, widely done anyway. Unfortunately, Unfortunately, the rule really only protects um, people who are drinking, are threatened by contaminated drinking water in public water supplies. So townships that provide water will be protected um, if their nitrate levels get high enough. The agency um, can require farmers to change how they apply their nitrogen fertilizers in a way that's more protective. But the people that are drinking out of private wells, which which is quite a few people in many of these areas, uh, will not be protected at all by this rule. The agency has not given itself the authority in this rule um, to require farmers that are impacting private wells to do anything to protect groundwater. So we have, so we know there's a groundwater problem. And in some places, up to 40% in town, in some townships, up to 40% of wells are contaminated with high level of nitrates. I mean, is it just nitrates that are the problem here? I mean, or what does what does high level of nitrates in a well tell us about the quality of water that folks are drinking? Right. So as I mentioned, nitrates have their own set of um, problems for people's health. But nitrates generally can be viewed sort of as the canary in the coal mine. Um, if nitrates are escaping off the land surface and going into the groundwater, anything else that's put on the land there um, is likely to be also taking that same pathway to the groundwater that people drink. Things like pesticides, uh, pathogens from manure 
manure that may be spread on um, farmland for um, fertilizing purposes. So although we may not have tested for all of those other things, the, the fact that we have high levels of nitrate is significant. It, it shows that there could be a significant other problem as well. Well, you, you just mentioned a second ago that there's this kind of there's two different ways to get more um, nitrogen or other kinds of um, food for for plants basically into the soil. Some of it involves chemical fertilizers that put nitrogen into the soil, um, but also spreading of manure, of manure from dairy operations, pig farms, etc. And there's been a lot of talk recently about like whether or not this is which which one of these is better, or whether or not you know using manure is superior to or safer than chemical fertilizers. Is it, is it true that one's safer than the other, or what's the difference between using manure to fertilize versus using chemicals to fertilize? Well, manure certainly has nutrients that are uh, considered good fertilizers, um, but manure applying too much liquid manure or liquid manure during risky periods of the year can cause pathogens such as bacteria um, and other pharmaceuticals that may be included in the liquid manure to leach into the groundwater or run off into the lakes. So while there are some benefits um, to using manure, there are also some significant risks based on what else is contained in that liquid manure. Okay. It feels like, you know, there's been a lot of move recently toward larger and larger feedlots in Minnesota where you've gotten applications to really dramatically expand existing operations or open new ones. Is there a lot more manure to take care of now than there was 10, 15 years ago in Minnesota? I mean, because you have to get rid of it somehow, right? So the way that they get rid of it is by applying it to fields. Are there enough fields left to apply all this extra manure to? Um, well, I think that it, the issue there is when these um, particular um, feedlots become very large, they have an excess amount of manure in one spot. And manure, it doesn't transport very easily. So that manure needs to be spread pretty close to the farms. And so mm -hmm. you're creating sort of hot spots of manure that need to be land spread and that then can um, put those groundwater aquifers underneath that land at risk and even the, the area rivers and streams. So it's not necessarily that there's more manure. It's just concentrated in different areas and the, more, the higher concentration makes it a little riskier. How far can they transport this stuff from the mm -hmm. farm where it's being generated? Um, I think generally between you know five and ten miles would be pretty far um, to transport manure because it is it's it's heavy. Yeah, <laughs> Liquid no, manure exactly. is, so it is heavy. It costs around. a lot of money to move around. Um, you know, smaller farms often compost their manure, um, mm -hmm. and then it's more of a, a drier product that doesn't have some of the same risks that liquid manure has. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about some of the work that you've been doing on some some of these specific proposals, because there have been a couple of large kind of mega feedlots that have been proposed that MCEA has been working on. And uh, in particular, I want to start by talking about um, your work representing a group of people in Fillmore County. Uh, Fillmore County is right on the border of, of Iowa, who are fighting a huge hog farm operation proposed. It's called the Catalpa LLC proposal. Can you tell me a little bit about the case? Sure. So this is a, a new feedlot that would be coming into an area, um, and it's a large feedlot. It would produce about 7 million gallons of liquid manure every year that, again, would have to be spread um, mm -hmm. on area cropland. This is an amount of um, sewage that is equivalent to some small towns, which are treated in wastewater treatment plants. But here the sewage is just uh, spread on the ground. Um, and the problem, particular problems in um, the vicinity where Catalpa is located is that this area is pocked by sinkholes and cracks and seeps in the earth's surface that act as sort of direct 
channels for the manure or the runoff when it rains um, for the contaminants in the manure to enter the groundwater system. Mm. Um, and in this particular area of the state, there's already some pretty serious problems with groundwater and surface water from current practices without this large farm, creating even more problems. Um, so there's about 10 to 30 percent of the private wells exceed nitrate mm. levels in local communities. And um, some of the rivers in the vicinity of this facility already are um, polluted by fecal bacteria bacteria, which um, we certainly don't want our rivers to have too much bacteria in them because we can't use them then. Are the wells in this area specifically contaminated? I mean, I, it's, it's not just about a general idea of, this, of, the, of the area having a problem, but there are spe- some specific wells nearby that are contaminated already? Yeah, in the areas, in the in the townships um, that are surrounding this particular facility, some have 30% of the private wells that have been tested exceed safe nitrate levels. Um, others have 20%. All of the nearby townships, all of have really high levels of nitrate um, hmm. and significant number of wells are contaminated as well. So, I mean, I, I want to spend a little bit of time just talking a little bit about the area right there because this area they call karst geology, right? The Lots of sinkholes. It's basically limestone. And on top of that, a fairly thin layer of soil. There aren't any lakes in this part of the state because they empty right into the groundwater table. And, and there have been other examples of where, you know, Municipal wastewater facilities have seen their their lagoons drained overnight. Uh, manure uh, pits have been drained too. So this is not a this is not a, a theoretical problem. We already know this exists in this part of the state, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly. Um, because there's a really there's a strong connection between what goes on the surface of the land and what ends up in the groundwater and then again in the rivers because of these cracks. Um, and then there's this problem of sinkholes opening up. Um, and when you put a lot of pressure on the land, sinkholes are more likely to, to open up. And there have been examples of sinkholes opening up that have drained um, lagoons that contain sewage. And so when that happens, that goes directly into the groundwater table. Yes. So we would be drinking that then. Yes. Okay, that's bad. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the neighbors who've been organizing uh, around this issue. There's a group called Responsible Agriculture for Karst Country that you represent as their attorney. Why why are they so concerned about this? I mean, obviously we talked about the drinking water issues, but what, why did they get so organized? I mean, it's kind of it's kind of an amazing feat to get a lot of neighbors organized so quickly like they have. Why are they so worried about this? I think they're very worried about it because it sort of changes their the way of life in this area. There aren't a lot of these really large feedlots in this area. Um, there's there's certainly agriculture, and some of um, the people that are challenging the siting of this particular facility are farmers themselves. They just have smaller operations where the manure is more manageable, mm-hmm. um, and they really understand how to care for their manure application to prevent sort of the disastrous effects of what happens when you have 7 million gallons of manure spread on the land a year. Um, and I think that is the the main concern is that this is a, a very large risk for the communities that have been tr- traditionally smaller feedlots in the area. How do residents learn that a big mega feedlot like this is being proposed for their community and how long do they have to respond when they learn about it? So generally, um, and, and in this case in particular, um, the, the local neighbors found out about the proposal um, because it was published in their area newspaper. And I think they, they found out just weeks before the comment period was closed. So essentially, there'll be a notice in the local newspaper that identifies the um, the feedlot that's coming in. Um, and then the neighbors and residents in the area have about 30 
days to review sort of this documentation that the Pollution Control Agency provides, which includes like a generalized summary of what the facility is, like how much manure it pr- will produce, how many animals, what type of animals, um, what potentially generalized risks from this facility exist. And this can actually be thousands of pages of information. So um, neighbors and community members really have 30 days to scan through this large this large amount of documents and submit comments to the Pollution Control Agency on what they think the risks are and why there should be more study of a facility before it comes in or what should be done to mitigate the potential risks. So in this case, you have folks who are neighbors to, to this proposal who are not experts on geology or what the impact on water quality is, and they're given basically a short notice in their newspaper, and then they're expected to see that notice, understand what it is, and then get thousands of pages of documents and decipher them to get comments in front of the Minnesota Pollution Control Agency in a month. Yes, and that's part of a process called an environmental assessment worksheet, um, which is a very uh, short process that should we want to see more study of these facilities. Um, and if the comments aren't submitted during this short process, it's unlikely that we would see any more study of these facilities before they're cited. So in the case of Catalpa, though, the, the neighbors contacted MCEA. They also contacted another organization that does a lot of great work, Land Stewardship Project, to help them um, get organized. And because of that, we were able to bring experts to bear to get these comments in before the 30-day period ended. But one of the requests has been for a more detailed environmental study called an environmental impact statement. So what's the difference between this environmental assessment worksheet that they have 30 days to respond to and now what the neighbors are asking for, which is a more detailed environmental impact statement? Mm -hmm. Well, the importance of an environmental impact statement is that neighbors really need enough information to know know what they're talking about. You know, a thousand pages of generalized information is very different than studies about the specific impacts of the facility. Mm -hmm. Um, So, for example, in this case, the environmental assessment worksheet um, had provided some information about the risks of a sinkhole developing under the farm. And as we we just discussed that would be not not a good option because manure could potentially drain directly into the groundwater. And at this point, that issue hasn't been resolved. The state agencies and the experts don't really agree on what the risk of that is and what that would look like. And so an EIS, which is an environmental impact statement, would give more time and more resources to really getting to the bottom of what that means. And the other thing that the environmental um, impact statement would be good for is to assess alternatives um, and potentially options to mitigate the risks from siting this facility in this area. Maybe it's not the right area to site it. Maybe there are things that can be done um, that would mitigate the risk, um, like moving the barns, things like that. And so that's all part of what would be this longer process called the environmental impact statement. So what, what kind of geological or other kinds of site studies what you might, what would you do under an environmental impact statement that hasn't been done yet? I mean, I know that they've done a couple of different kinds of relatively cursory studies of the site, but what would they do in an environmental impact statement to figure out whether or not what the real risks are of a sinkhole opening up, for example? Well, there are studies that can can tell you exactly that they're called electronic resistivity. <laughs> and they, this is, a, it's very technical. It's a twister, electronic resistivity. Yes, it is. And it, and it helps determine um, how porous the ground is and whether it's um, a, a challenge for a sinkhole. And there's been some limited assessment of that, but they really need a more thorough assessment to get an idea of what the land looks like from sort of all angles. And that hasn't been done at this point. Okay. The response to this has been pretty amazing. I mean, uh, there was a big uh, public hearing down there. 
a couple of months ago where the MPCA presented their findings and there were like over 400 people at that hearing in a town of 800, Mabel, Minnesota. Um, and since then, there's been a lot of activity on the local level to try to put the brakes on some of these large proposals. Um, and that includes some townships passing moratoria, uh, moratoriums, is it moratoria? I think it's moratoria, on, on you know, putting the brakes on it and saying we have to take about a year to figure out what we want to do to regulate this industry. Can you talk a little bit about some of the local actions that have been uh, trying to use zoning laws to restrict the risk? Certainly. So several two townships in the area thus far have adopted one-year moratoria on siting of these large animal feedlots, um, the town of Mabel and Preble. Um, and this gives the community time to really assess what they want their landscape to look like um, mm. and to consider what, what risks are posed by siting such large feedlots and whether they're really right for the community that they want to have in the long run. Um, and they can also impose protections um, that would they can be deemed to protect their water quality, or in some cases, um, counties do something similar. Like the the Winona County has enacted a cap on how many animals can be at any one particular feedlot, and that's out of a concern about the amount of manure that are housed at these particular facilities and the threats to drinking water in the area. So there can be a variety of ways for local governments and counties to um, ensure that their wa drinking water and their surface water is protected. Well, it's interesting you mentioned Winona County. Too. Too, because MCA is also working on another case in Winona County that is at about the same stage, I'd say, as the Catalpa proposal. It's called the Daily Farms Expansion. Uh, and that's a dairy as opposed to a hog farm. But as you said a moment ago, Winona County has a cap. I think it was at 1,500 animal units is what they describe it as. So what, what is Daily proposing and how does it fit that cap? That that's already that's been in, in existence in Winona County for several years now. As I just mentioned, the Winona County has a cap on the total number of animal units, um, <laughs> which is sort of an odd um, unit, but it, it relates to how much manure is produced by any particular animal. And so, so like a, like a like a cow is like what one point two animal units or sure, yep, yeah. that's about right. And a, and a hog, which produces less manure, would be. Um, less than one animal unit. Okay. So it's essentially to prevent uh, a lot of manure from being cited in one spot. Right. So the cap is 1,500 animal units, and the daily um, dairy is proposing to expand to include 6,000 animal units, um, which is four times higher than what Monona County had previously deemed to be sort of acceptable for their community. So daily will have to get a variance. Um, they will have to seek a variance from the county in order to site that facility there, which they are in the process of, of doing as well. Um, you know, this is also concerning because it's near two communities um, that have been really struggling with nitrate contamination mm -hmm. in their public drinking water supplies. And again, like the Catalpa facility, um, the townships in this area are suffering from a lot of the private wells do have nitrate contamination and the rivers have, you know, fecal bacteria contamination as well. Hmm. So, I mean, and the, to give you some sense of scale, the, what, 7 million gallons of manure from the Catalpa case we were talking about earlier? How many million gallons of manure from this daily farm's expansion? So it'd be just over 50 million gallons of manure that's produced each year and then would need to be spread on area cropland. Um, they keep it in lagoon systems like giant swimming pools, I guess you could call them. Please don't um, call them that. No, just don't call it <laughs> Don't that. swim in them. Uh -huh. um, but th that's where they store the manure when they're not spreading it. But you have to have enough area to spread all that manure, so you have to empty the lows, the lagoons on 
a certain time period in order right. to ensure that you know rain doesn't cause those things to overflow. How many how many acres of land do they need in order to apply all that manure? The several thousand acres. I think they're looking at four thousand acres total. Some of the okay. land that they own that they'll use, and others they'll have to um, ask other owner landowners to spread the manure on. So this is even bigger than the Catalpa case would be. Mm-hmm. So yes. and I know that. MCA had to go to court recently on this case because um, a number of agribusiness interests, the Minnesota Milk Producers, the Cattlemen's Association, I think, a couple other, uh, Minnesota Agri-Growth Council, um, joined together and filed a challenge to the MPCA, the Minnesota Pollution Control Agency, who had given a two-week extension to local residents to get comments in because a number of them asked for an extension because they were in the middle of harvest. What was the agri- agricultural industry asking for in this lawsuit, and why, and why did MCA have to get involved? So this is a pretty surprising lawsuit in, in our mind um, because it was meant to, to shorten the time period that individuals have to comment on what's a really large proposal that could impact their community. As you mentioned, the public was re- originally given 30 days to comment um, and asked for a two-week two extension on that, which the PCA um, granted. And the commodity groups asked um, the state courts in St. Paul to sort of stop that extension of time. Um, out of concern that it would create more delay. But it really would have pub- limited public input. Um, the court rightfully allowed the comment period to go- proceed for the extra f- 15 days, which was very important because by the time the court made the decision, the 30-day comment period was just expiring. So a lot of people who had sort of relied on these extra two weeks to get their comments and would have been prevented from that altogether. And if they're prevented from filing comments at that stage, what's the impact of that? So when the pollution control agency decides whether they're going to um, do that further detailed analysis that we were talking about, the environmental impact statement, they have mm-hmm. to review all the comments on all the concerns of people in the community um, and people who hire experts. Certainly there will be expert um, input on this particular um, proposal um, talking about the you know the risk of sinkholes, the risk to water quality, um, the, the really whether um, there's enough land in this vicinity to spread this amount of manure safely. And so there's going to need to be some expert opinions. And um, the community members needed that time to get that information into into the Pollution Control Agency for them to consider. So if they hadn't, they, they, they just wouldn't have been considered at all. Because right. you either get it in the record or you don't. Correct. Okay. So what's the next step on this Daily Farms case? I mean, uh, the Catalpa case, we're waiting. Well, actually, let's do these two separately. We'll start with Catalpa. Mm-hmm. Where are we at with that case? That's the case with the hog farm in, in Fillmore County. Mm-hmm. So currently, um, the community where um, the Catalpa facility would be sited has a moratorium. Um, so that facility can't be sited. But the process of permitting that facility through the State Pollution Control Agency is still ongoing. Um, at this point, the Pollution Control Agency had a comment period and identified some risks that they hadn't considered in their initial um, quick look at the facility. So they've Mm -hmm. asked for some additional studies about um, the the potential for sinkholes to develop and opened yet another comment period. So I think there's a hearing tomorrow um, to discuss the potential for these sinkholes and these further studies that have been done. I think it's later today. Later today. Yeah, so just December 4th. And then that's down in Mabel, Minnesota again. Yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
Can the public participate in this comment period if they can't attend the meeting in southern Minnesota? Certainly, they can. Um, there's a link on pollution on the Minnesota Pollution Control Agency's website um, for where to submit comments and how to get them in and what the time frame is. Um, there's usually a limited time period, and mm-hmm. that would be identified. I think there's a week left about for written comments to be submitted. Okay, and then so and also MCA for folks that are interested in getting involved in this case also has a petition, actually more of a direct targeted action. In other words, you can go to our website and then email Commissioner John Link Stein of the MPCA asking for that more detailed environmental impact statement in solidarity with the folks who are asking for it in the local community. And you can go to our website at mncenter.org slash standwithkarstcountry. Or if you just want to go to our front page of our website, it's right there. Um, You can click on that link and stand with the neighbors who are asking for more uh, detailed environmental study to see whether or not there is a risk to their groundwater. How about the Daily Farms case? Where are we at with that? So the public comment period on that just recently ended, um, and the Pollution Control Agency, I think they received several hundred comments, maybe in the range of 600 comments. So they need to sort through all of those comments and determine whether or not they're going to um, require this more detailed environmental impact statement. Mm -hmm. Um, They had 15 days to do that, which doesn't seem like much. Um, and then they can extend that 15-day period um, one time. Um, and then they'll need to make a decision about whether to um, require the environmental impact statement. They're also making decisions about um, what types of requirements to put in um, water pollution permits for these facilities, which will also, that occurs at the same time that PCA is considering the comments on the, the environmental impact statement. So has the MPCA as an agency ever asked for or ordered a more detailed environmental impact statement for a proposal like the Daily Farms one or the Catalpa proposal? So my understanding is that the Pollution Control Agency has never required an EIS. Um, They have had an agreement with um, a proposed feedlot to voluntarily do one. So Mm -hmm. they did an environmental impact statement. And a court has ordered an environmental impact statement sort of after the fact. Uh, It was a little late. (laughs) So after they built built it, they required it? Yes. uh, The court system takes a little bit longer. Um, And so that was required by the courts, but not initially by the Pollution Control Agency. So if the MPCA orders a more detailed environmental impact statement, on either the Catalpa or Daily Farms case, that would be different than decades of practice. Yes. Mm-hmm. So this is a big deal. It is a big deal. Okay. Yeah. Well, and, and I would encourage everybody who's listening to get on, their, get on our website, find ways that you can put some pressure on the MPCA, because I think it's really important that if we're going to cite 7 million gallons of manure, a big lagoon of that holding that much manure on top of a potential sinkhole, we would probably want to find out whether this is more likely or not. And it kind of astounds me that we don't actually do that as a matter of course. But thanks for your work on that. I mean, and I'm really excited to let people know that we can take action on this through our website. Um, Also, at 6.30 p.m. on December 4th in Mabel, Minnesota, there is a public hearing on some of the additional site investigations that have been happening at the Catalpa Catalpa site. But otherwise, thanks so much, Betsy. You've been really helpful and explained a lot of things that are really complicated. So thank you for that. Thanks, Aaron. Great. So 2019 is shaping out to be a big year. Minnesota will be making decisions like the ones we talked about on this podcast that will affect our drinking water and all of the water that Minnesotans depend on. Will we start effectively regulating these mega feedlot proposals that protect our water? Or will we continue this long, slow slide that we've been on that's put our drinking water at risk? 
you have a stake in these important decisions and a say in these decisions too. And so we really want you to stay involved. Be sure to follow MCEA's work. Visit our website at www.mncenter.org and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at MCEA1974. In particular, right now, you can take action to help the folks that we're working with in Fillmore County. Go to mncenter.org, it's on the front page, and click, stand, click on Stand with Cars Country, and we'll tell you how you can take action. Lastly, we can't do this work without you. If you want to help us represent people like the folks affected by feedlots in Winona County, in Fillmore County, in the courts, at the legislature, please consider a donation to, to MCEA. As you know, we're getting into December and coming up to the end of our year. Um, it's really important for us to be able to set our budget to know how, who's supporting our work. So please consider a contribution this month by going to mncenter.org donate. You can subscribe now on iTunes so you never miss an episode of Power Lunch. You can also find us on SoundCloud at MCEA1974 at soundcloud.com. Lots of different ways for you to share this information and make sure that everyone knows what's going on with Minnesota's water. So this has been MCEA's Power Lunch with Betsy Lott. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll share your lunchtime with MCEA again soon. Thank you.